0: Well, uh, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, it's good to be back and uh, to bring God's word. And I want to sort of take the chance to praise the Lord for what He has done in my life, in Nathaniel's life, and the fact that we are home. It is so good to be with you. And we want to give uh, glory to the Lord for the body, the church that has supported us uh, through our, our struggle. And, you know, it's been just a great picture of the wider church, the unity of the body. Um, We had no less than six whole churches praying for us over the past uh, six weeks across three different denominations. We had Presbyterians joining with Episcopalians, joining with Baptists to pray for Nathaniel. We had people in Montana, in California, in Germany praying for us. And we had never even met many of these people. What a glorious picture it is. But special thanks are to be given for you all. Thank you so much. Uh, We have really felt the love that you have for us. And we've only been here about six months, a little less than six months. And, you know, it was a joy to come back and to call this home and to worship with you all. And so thank you so much for praying. But before we sort of get too far off and before I start crying, uh, let's turn our attention to to God's word um, and pray. Father God, uh, you are worthy of our everything. We thank you that you do not leave us in the misery of our sin, but you sent your son to redeem us. And Lord, we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to be with us while we are still in this broken and fallen world. And as we look at this passage today, today, we ask that you would speak mightily to us, that you would give us diligent minds to pay attention to the wonder of your word. And Lord, we ask that you most of all would transform us, that we would love you more, and that we would uh, be more conformed to your image. Help us now, we pray. Amen. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8, we'll be reading verses 28 to 30. And these are words that many of you are well acquainted with, so uh, let us pay attention carefully for we tend to get these uh, verses wrong, which is why we're preaching on them today in this particular series. So, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So when we hear this verse, it's used generally in the context of suffering, pain, or something like that. So I want you to imagine a scene. Uh, This sort of played out a couple of weeks ago after Nathaniel was born. Um, Sarah and I were huddled on a couch in the living room crying our eyes out. Uh, I managed to I managed to choke out that uh, the doctor had mentioned to us that the neurologist had read uh, nathaniel 's eEG and pronounced a diagnosis of severe brain damage due to oxygen deprivation during delivery, and uh, as you might imagine, we were not happy uh, we were in pain and we were in suffering and What would you have done if you were there, if you had come across us crying our eyes out? Well, um, if you were like many of the the American Christians, or many of us, you would have wrapped us up in a big hug and whispered something comforting. And maybe the words, you know, God works all things together for good, you know, he'll be okay, might have come out of your mouth. And now I get that you're well-meaning, And you're trying to say something that's comforting, but there are really sort of significant problems with saying that to me in that particular situation. And uh, so first I want to deal with how we use this verse. Uh, Then I want to talk about two errors that we commonly make that um, uh, totally blow up the way that this verse ought to be used. And then I finally want to talk about how reading this verse properly in its context is actually far, far better comfort than the way that we actually use it. So let's dive right in. So how do we normally use this verse? What are we saying when the phrase, God works all things together for good, pops out of our mouth? We could mean that God will work, we're, we'll work it out, that things will turn out for the better. But what does that even mean? What is the better that we're talking about? Do we mean that we're going to be delivered from this particular suffering? Do we mean that we're going to get something bigger and better? It's sort of a vague, general, things will get better. And I bet you that most of us would get squeamish about getting specific about what we mean when we say this. Do we mean, in the case of Nathaniel, that God will work over and against the medical fact that he has brain damage and that he will turn out normal? Well, probably not. We would get squeamish about that. In, in reality, most of the time, we use this phrase as sort of a Christian, it'll be okay. Um, but it's far more than just saying it'll be okay because we're using Scripture with a clear promise to extend comfort. You know, when we say, it'll be okay, we all know what, what we actually mean. We don't actually mean that it, it will all be okay. It's a sort of a platitude. You know, no one will, no one in their right mind would think that if we say, it, it'll be okay, to somebody who's, for instance, just re- received a cancer diagnosis, we, no one would actually think that when we say, it'll be okay, that constitutes Us saying, oh, yeah, the only outcome will be positive. Nobody actually believes that that's what we mean. You know, oftentimes the end results are not okay. And so when we use this verse as a stand-in for it's okay, as our sort of default comfort, we really claim big things. We set the Lord up to do something that he doesn't actually promise. In reality, we are setting ourselves up upon biblical, unbiblical expectations of what the Lord is doing in our circumstances. And then when things don't go our way, when things don't go the way that we want them to, the Lord is sort of a convenient scapegoat, even though we have essentially put words in his mouth. And so I've said that we've essentially put words in his mouth when we use this phrase wrongly, and there are two errors that commonly crop up when we use this phrase. The first error is that we apply it to the wrong people. We want to ground our words of comfort in something meaningful when talking to our non-Christian friends. We We often want to say something more than, you know, I'm sorry, or it'll be okay. And we often want to say something that calls attention to God's control over circumstances because we want them to see that God's hand is at work in their lives, and we want to point them to God when things work out. But this is obviously not what Paul had in mind. It's not really even a defensible error. Because who Paul is addressing with this particular promise is actually in the verse. And it's in the verse twice. Okay, And we know that for those who love God, for those who love God, starts the verse and for those who are called according to his purpose, ends it. Okay? You really can't get away from it. This promise that God will work all things together for good is only for Christians. You can't extend it to non-Christians. If I promise Sarah flowers, Sarah's sister cannot say that I promised her flowers too. The promise is not transferable. Sorry, Rachel. <laughs> no flowers for you, okay? You know, we have to be very careful about who we extend the promises to because promises are made to specific people and they are not meant to be extended beyond whom they are made to. Well, the second error is that we redefine the word good. Good. And this is sort of the bigger problem that we run into, right? We tend to think of good as better circumstances and the like, but Paul has a very different definition of what good is. The good that he is referring to doesn't deal so much with circumstances, but deals rather with changing who we are. The good that God is working toward isn't our eternal bliss and comfort of life in heaven, but rather conforming us to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. It's very plainly in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also, be, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Being like Christ is the end, it's the goal, it's the purpose, it's the everything. It is the good that God is working toward. This good, in Paul's eyes, is far better than better circumstances here in this world. For the deepest desire of a Christian's heart, whether, or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, is to be free of the sin that so easily entangles, to reflect the perfect holiness, righteousness, and glory of our Savior. You know, earlier in, in Romans eight twenty uh, eight 8.22 and 23, Paul says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, we need to listen to that carefully. Notice that the groaning of Christians is, anti- is in anticipation of adoption as sons and redemption of our bodies. It is not to enjoy the eternal awesomeness of our circumstances in heaven. It will be great. There will be no pain, there will be no suffering, all of that. That's all awesome. But that pales in comparison to the redemption of our bodies, the fact that we will be able to be perfect, that we will see and be righteous, that we will see the Lord fully. Okay? It's a distinct difference. Paul craves not the ease and glory of heaven but to be fully one with his Savior, to have his whole self redeemed and perfect. We have to be mindful of what God actually promises us. We can't just reinterpret what he means by good however we want and be like promising my son a cat whenever he grows up and then him turning around and saying that I've promised him a tiger. Yes, a tiger is a kind of cat, but that is not at all what I meant by getting him a cat, okay? Okay. And so he needs to understand that when I say cat, I mean like something small, okay? Maybe a kitten like the Dorists have. Maybe not a demon kitten like the dorses have, but like a nice kitten, okay? (laughs) Mistaking what is good is really at the heart of why we misuse this verse, okay? We want to be free of suffering, I mean, who, who likes suffering? Nobody. We are consumed with the desire for ease and comfort and security and especially in this day and age, there are millions of ways in which we try to escape suffering. Your phones, your social media, your like Netflix, like movies. There are so many ways that we self-medicate that we try to escape the hard realities that we are living. And we really go to sort of great lengths to avoid them. But Truly, what did we expect? Did we expect that when we became Christians that everything would be great, that we'd get sort of this preferential treatment that, that everything would be awesome? Did we expect that the Lord would richly bless us with a worry and pain-free life? You know, Jesus has a radically different expectation for how his followers would fare. Jesus said in John 15:20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep you yours. But it, all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Look, we're doing a sermon series for eight weeks now. You know, We've been doing this particular sermon series for eight weeks. We're, you're probably waiting for me to some, at some point say, it's important to consider the whole counsel of God when interpreting a passage, right? Well... Surprise, this is it. It is important to consider the whole counsel of God when interpreting a passage. In John, Jesus expects his followers to be persecuted because he was persecuted. What kind of Savior do we have that we are being conformed to the image of? We have a risen Savior, and he is risen because he first had to die. Think about it. You cannot be resurrected unless you first die. I mean, come on, there are so many, so many verses about how Jesus would be a suffering servant. You could look at Isaiah 53, where Christ is prophesied to be called a man who is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is the image that we have, right? Just a few verses later are the famous words of him being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Not particularly fun. If you want New Testament evidence of being conformed to, that being conformed to Christ meant that we would be suffering, you don't really have to look much further than the Gospels. But just for fun, we could turn to Colossians 1.24, where Paul rejoices in his sufferings because he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church. In 2 Corinthians 2.10, we are called to carry in the body of the dead, uh, We are called to carry in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The idea is that our light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In Hebrews 2.10, we find that it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist is bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. 2 Corinthians 1.9 reminds us that our suffering was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We could go on and on and on and on, quoting verses that presuppose suffering in the Christian experience. Christians should expect suffering. The escape from pa- the pain of the moment doesn't sort of seem to be high on the priority list of of Paul and the other apostles. Rather, the apostles, and especially Paul, seem to come at suffering from a different angle, from a different start point. Their expectations for deliverance from suffering and hopes in the midst of suffering are just radically different. For Paul, he might not understand why things are working out the way they are, but he is willing to trust that the Lord is faithful to his word. Later in Romans 8, we get to verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. um, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As with Paul, we might not know what's going on. But we do know that God is in control and that he's using both the good and the bad for his glory and for yours as well. It's a subtle distinction that that, um, that we're making here. It gets tricky because the common usage seems to affirm two big Christian doctrines that Paul also affirms. The common usage um, seeks to affirm the sovereignty of God over all things and that God will bring things to a positive end. Well, Paul affirms both of these doctrines. But again, the directions of the exercise of God's sovereignty are radically different. The aim is vastly different. One, the uh, the common conception is earthly. It's for our circumstances. It's for deliverance from our circumstances. And the other one is heavenly. It's delivery to conformity with his son, Jesus Christ. For Paul, Christ is at the heart of his focus. Everything in his life points to Christ. For those who misuse this phrase, circumstances are at the heart of their focus. Everything in their life points to themselves. It's about my cares, it's about my desires, it's about my hurts, my pains, my sorrows. But you know, this is me, right? This is you. This is why the verse is so tempting. I desperately, in my heart of hearts, want God to promise me things about my circumstances. I want him to promise me about Nathaniel's development and safety, that he will develop well. I desperately want God to reassure me that no harm will come to Sarah, right? I desperately want God to promise me an easy life free of suffering and sorrow, not only for me, but especially for the ones that I love. I want to rationalize what I'm doing as, well, I'm just affirming God's sovereignty over all things, or, well, didn't God say that he would make all things good for me? But at its heart, it's a lack of trust in the Lord. Do I trust the Lord with my everything? Do I trust him with the life of my son? Do I trust that whatever happens, that God will work it out for his glory and my ultimate good, even if I can't see how it could possibly work out that way? Before us is the kind of question that Jesus puts to Martha in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He is asking her to hold on to him in the midst of her anguish, to cut through the pain and to anchor into the truth that he is everything. You know, C.S. Lewis has a lot of good quotes and one of the best quotes that sticks with me, it comes from, his, from the Screwtape letters. And um, here, Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, do not be deceived, Wormwood, our, our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks around upon a universe in which every trace of him, meaning God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. It's a hard thing, but is this not what Jesus did on the cross, feeling forsaken and yet obeying to the point of death and trusting that the Lord's plan was right for him? Well, now that we've blown up sort of everything about this verse, it's sort of time to rebuild it. Up to now, we've been sort of talking about exegetical errors. We've been not using the verse in line with the text. We've left parts out. We have not seen it in its immediate context. And up to now, we've been just talking about how this phrase produces expectations that are not in line with God, with what God actually promises from a sort of a textual accuracy perspective. I want to talk about now why I think that while we get the promises wrong, I think that we actually undersell them. I think that what we have here in the text is actually far better comfort for me in my sorrow and for you in your sorrow um, than this sort of obviously cherry-picked platitude that is clearly not in line with the scripture. So let's let's back up and take a wider view of what Paul is talking about here in chapter 8. We need to take the whole chapter into consideration. Back in verses 22 and 23, we saw that Paul is anticipating the redemption of his body. But the emphasis is not actually on the redemption, but on the present struggle that he has against his sinful flesh. We are groaning for redemption. And it is in this hope for redemption that we are saved in verse 24. But Paul doesn't see the fruition of this hope. Because of the veil of corruption, uh, the veil of sin and the corruption of sin, we we don't see clearly what God is doing. But he hopes with patience, waiting for the time to come when all things are revealed. It is in this waiting, through through suffering, sin, and less than ideal circumstances, that Paul gets to verse 26. In this world, we need the Spirit. The world is so broken and our groaning is often all that we see and all that we experience. The bitter taste of suffering is often in our mouths and we struggle against it. And so when we do not know what to do in the midst of the chaos and the storm and the despair and the helplessness, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit is is said to intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. When words fail us, when we don't know how to pray, we still have the Holy Spirit to cry out and communicate our hearts and desires to the Father. And it is a great comfort in unspeakable sorrow and suffering. But it is in the sea of pain and suffering that Paul speaks a truth that anchors us to Christ. We might not know how to pray in times of trial, but we do know something. I was listening to um, a clip of a sermon that uh, a preacher by the name of Alistair Begg, um, I, was, I was listening to him and he said, you know, so much of our day we ask, how do you feel? To my response, and his response is, I don't feel good. Don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. So what do we know? The thing that we know without a shadow of a doubt is that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is a truth that we can hang our hats on. But for some, this word that God is working for Christians to conform them to Christ is only future. That all we have to do in the here and now is to wait for the future to come. And so many of the great promises of the faith are future. We are looking forward to a future reality that helps us in this present. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul talks about the light and momentary afflictions of this life preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. There are future aspects that motivate us to persevere through the pain and anguish of the present. The idea being without sin, without sorrow, to have and to have a new body that doesn't breakdown and decay. The idea of having a full and open relationship with the Lord. There is so much for us to look forward to. But this is where I think I get frustrated with the misuse of this verse. The common use push it pushes everything to the future. It's all future. It's an, oh, don't worry, God has got this. Just wait and have faith now. He's going to turn this around. Just wait for him. But my problem isn't that I have I've I think that I've somehow gotten off of God's plan. My problem is that my situation really really stinks, that my my heart is broken and that I'm in a lot of pain. That's my problem. That's what I need to have dealt with. My problem is that I feel alone and abandoned and just broken. And the common usage doesn't speak at all to that present hurt. In fact, it minimizes it. The common usage insinuates a dismissal that this pain is manageable in light of what God is going to do. You just need to wait on God to arrive and do his thing. You shouldn't hurt so much. But the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel has present value for us, in addition to the future promises. It has a robust answer to the pain and anguish of our present. From a different angle, Romans 8.28 says that your pain is not meaningless. Even in this pain, even this pain, this horrible pain is being used for the kingdom. In the midst of your pain and struggle, God is right there with you, working. He's using this for something that we will rejoice in. We might not know what that is. We might not understand how this horrible thing fits into the Lord's working toward conforming us to Christ's image, but we do know this that God has not abandoned you, that God has not forgotten you, that God is not idle, but rather he is working even in this to conform you to his image. It is this solid knowledge that enables Paul to write the passage that comes immediately after the passage that we have today. It culminates with the verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor anything present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of mine, in the midst of the uncertainty and the worry, this is what we are sure of, that we are loved beyond compare, and that he is with us. He who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, he who is well acquainted with grief knows our pain, that is a glorious truth that we can hold on to in times of trouble and tribulation for those who love god all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose let us pray father in the midst of our sufferings we cling to you where else can we go you are life You know the fears, the worries, the needs that we have, and you promise to conform us to your Son. Would you remind us of the glorious security that we have in you, that because you are faithful to complete the work that you have started in us, to conform us to the image of Christ, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand. The benediction today comes to us from Philippians chapter 1. Let's receive this from the Lord. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.